0: Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, in. the thesaurus. That has become like a Bible to Creative me. Creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning. Very specific action verb. This is season three. Season three
1: of the actor's mind.
0: A podcast. You got it, you got it. <laughs> By Kateri McRae and Anne Kenner. <laughs>
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to our third episode of Season 3 of the Actors' Mind podcast. My name is Anne Penner.
0: And I'm Kateri McRae.
1: And this episode is on creativity. Uh, creativity is something that I've wanted to do an episode on for a long time. And... Part of the reason I want to do an episode on creativity, and I got Kateri on board, is <laughs> I am in an acting class. I'm often assessing or even grading the quote-unquote creativity of a particular student's performance. And I felt like I was a poser if I didn't know exactly objectively what I was addressing. And we're both fully aware that creativity is this massive topic. Uh, and so I just want to make sure we bound it and, and, and let you know what we're striving to talk about does Definitely. That make sense? Yeah. Uh, so the definition of creativity is pretty general. The use of the imagination or of original ideas, especially in the production of an artistic work. And so what I hear in that is even this idea of an original idea, I think so much of creating something is you're actually not starting with original material, you're, you're stealing an idea, you're stealing the biography of Hamilton, right? You're stealing, um, someone else's painting, but then, or, or style of painting, you're stealing someone else's, uh, way that they portray a character, but then you are transforming it into something new, right? Through the idea of synthesis of putting things together, um, The way I want to think about creativity is twofold. It's it's an actor's individual creation of character. And then it's also a group of theater professionals creating a full show or production, in particular a playwright, a director, designers, and actors. Of course, in all of our episodes, we're interested in supporting and talking about best practices. So in terms of creativity, we want to break the myth of the muse, the idea that it's just like... It just comes to me, right? I just get it, um, that it's a lot about work and about process. And I think as we, as one gets more experience as an actor, the idea of formulating a specific process, almost step-by-step process. Um, to that end, we've created a, a three-step process, right? About yeah. creativity.
0: Yeah. and. This is one of the rare episodes where what psychologists call this is actually the exact same thing. (laughs) So (laughs) this isn't creativity and something else. This is creativity and creativity. Creativity. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the interesting things, I am not a creativity researcher. A lot of my interests sort of touch on related concepts. But one of the things I found interesting as I was doing a little bit of research for this episode is that there are a lot of sort of like really quick, like handful of empirically supported tips for tips. To increase creativity. And one of them is practice, right? That creativity, like anything else, is a skill. So this sort of myth of the muse as well, in addition to being sort of ill-defined, there's also this like lack of control contained there, right? Yeah. Like I just wait for it to come to me. Yeah. You know, I wait to bump into things in the world that inspire my thoughts, which is like, no, actually you can create a creative practice and set a process. Yeah. Um, and and you can rinse, wash it and and repeat and that every single idea you come up with every single time will be gold, but that's actually part of the process is separating out the the worthy ideas from the sort of other things that you generate. So in general, different people have called these sort of three steps of the creative process different things over the years. Uh, but what sort of makes the most sense to us is to think of phase one of creativity as the idea generation, Right. So you might think of idea generation as like brainstorming, so the other artistic jargon for brainstorming or sure. generating it, ideas. Yeah, and I
1: think it's all the tools that we've talked about in previous episodes, especially in the first season. Uh, the idea of of implementing the tool of objective of relationship of uh, given circumstances of physicality, but in a very messy. Um, somewhat associative way where you aren't quite sure how all of this will be useful or how you might use it. Um, it takes a lot of time, I think, this act of genera- generating or brainstorming um, where I just picture myself as an actor symbolically like reaching out, right? Yeah. Not quite knowing what I'm reaching for. Um, I have a couple quick anecdotes. Uh, Meryl Streep on Inside the Actor's Studio, which is that James Lipton show, where he would interview famous performers. He asked her, you know, what do you do? when you start to build a character and she pauses and she goes, I don't know. Like there's this moment and it sounds disingenuous coming from her, but I don't <laughs> think it was. It's really this vacuum of brief vacuum of how am I going to do this? Yeah. And I think that's actually healthy as long as it's temporary to kind of in a very humble way, go, what am I reaching for? Like, I, how am I going to get to this end point?
0: Yeah, there's something very nonlinear about this stage, yeah. right? It's it's not uh, it's not directed. Um it's it's very multidirectional. Um, yes. and within the jargon of creativity research, this sort of um type of creativity or phase of creativity is often referred to as divergent thinking. Right. So divergent being um coming up with thoughts that are different from either thoughts that have come before it or thoughts that um that you're immediately like dealing with. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, extremely divergent thinking might even be sort of borderline nonsensical, right? right. Where, where you do one thing and you do something else that seems to have no connection or make no sense at all right. with what you've just done. And there's a sort of mental image you can think of, again, if you think of this as nonlinear and you think of ideas or like um, thoughts uh, sort of spewing out in multiple directions, one of the mental images um, I find helpful is a chia pet, right? Where you just like, you spread the seeds and then it grows out in all directions it can possibly reach. And if you actually think about how the brain um, develops itself, the brain sort of, you're born with a bunch of brain cells, right? Um, but they're not all connected the way that they need to be connected for you to to function as an adult human being. And so uh, you, you, you generate new brain cells and the ones that you're born with and the ones that you generate go through a period that's called proliferation, where both the number of cells you have and the connections that they make, so the axons that are reaching out to form synapses and talk to other brain cells, are reaching out in a not entirely, but relatively, relatively haphazard fashion, right? They're just growing out wherever they have space and then they're just sort of like
1: seeing what happens if they go yeah. and try to
0: make a connection it's beautiful.
1: with other neurons there. I feel like there's this beautiful messiness where that I want to encourage actors to embrace rather than feel like it has to be linear where you might have an as if or a substitution pop up where you think, God, is that Is that going to be useful for me? I don't know. And then you might have this imaginary idea, and then you might have this idea about how the character moves through space. And then you drop into the text, and you get a clue from the text, right? Um, But you don't yet quite know how these ingredients go together and how useful or how essential each of them is. I am going to do a show this summer. I get to play Penelope in The Odyssey, and... You know, you get cast, you're like, yes, I got cast, you know, and like, (laughs) you know, similar to the Meryl Streep story, like, and now what, like, what do I do, right? And you have a moment of not knowing. And then I just begin to kind of search in the dark and I go, okay, well, I have the script. That's a parameter, right? That's an essential ingredient, right? I have the original Odyssey, That's so I, tr- cool. so I, tr- right? So it's not <laughs> from scratch, right? And I have I found a translation written by a woman, Emily Wilson, Ooh. first ever translation by a woman. Uh, and then I realized Margaret Atwood wrote the Penelopead. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it, which is the the story of the Odyssey, but from Penelope's perspective. Very cool. And then I have this vague idea in the back of my head that I do not want to play the stereotype of Penelope of the faithful wife, even if that has some truth to it. So those are the things. And right now they're very separate from each other, but over time I will figure out how to synthesize um, this it also feels the like the the first step is the most childlike step. Mm-hmm. Like I think a lot about kids in parallel play or even just my eight-year-old daughter doing imaginative play where it's just ha- – is very free form um, and there aren't that many rules. And I think as we get into step two and three, they have a little more maturity to them yeah. and a little more process and a little more um, – Sophistication Absolutely. behind
0: them. No, and I think I think that that first step is purposefully immature. Right, you are not throwing out fully formed ideas. You are tossing things out and see what has, seeing what has legs, seeing what sparks other thoughts, seeing what takes you down an avenue that sort of you want to go further down. And if you think about again, if you think about this phase as being associated with divergent thinking, there are a number of divergent thinking measures. Um, and divergent thinking, if if you are measuring it in a person or in a group, um, is measured by both quantity and quality of ideas. And the quantity of ideas is just how many different things you can come up with in response to a particular prompt. So a really well-known prompt in a divergent thinking measure is how many different things can you do with a brick? Like how many different uses are there for a brick? And you give people, I think it's two minutes maybe, um, to generate as many uses of a brick as you possibly can, right? So you can just look at the overall number that people come up with. Um, anyone who's listening, if you want, to, like pause and set a timer for two minutes. This is actually really fun. <laughs> um, so, okay, unpause if you if you did that. Um, and so, almost everybody comes up with like build a house. Sure. Right. What do you think is another really common one, Anne?
1: Uh, I always think there's a weapon. Like, yeah. You throw it at someone. Yeah.
0: When, uh, people say <gasps> paperweight. House, paperweight. Yeah. Hit someone with it. Paperweight. Uh, smashing windows is really popular that mm. like people come up with. Drawing on it. Not a lot of people <laughs> want to use it as a canvas, but sure. So like there's just the raw number you can come up with in a short period of time. Yeah. But then there's also the originality of it. So there's actually databases of like hundreds, thousands of people who have done this task um, and they're probably not, uh, there's probably not a lot of different databases in different cultures and things like that. But it, it, at least in like Western cultures, there's databases of the most commonly produced uses for a brick. And then there's really out there ones like, oh, you can paint it yellow and try to pass it off as a block of cheese and sell it in a marketplace. Yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. would not a lot of people come up with that one. Yeah. Um, you know, you could, uh, you know, ground it. Up with a mortar and pestle, pestle and, and take it into, into a paste, and then you know try and to paint, with, some, it and paint with it on a it. canvas. There yeah. you go. There's your painting. So, <laughs> so there's like a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it's both the uh, it's is both the the number and the breadth uh, of of options that you sort of come up with. that yeah. matters.
1: And I think in this, uh, I'm teaching directing right now, and one question that keeps popping up is sort of like when. Do I set parameters? When do I set rules? And at the start of a process, what are the parameters? And I would say as an actor, it's your—it's the lines on the page. It's the character you've been given. For a director or anyone working uh, on a play... Also, there's this. you're brainstorming with designers, you're brainstorming with actors, and you're brainstorming sort of on your own in terms of what the given circumstances are. What are the possibilities, right? If you do that brick exercise with designers, designers are just brainstorming a bunch of crazy ideas, not all of which will happen, right? When you're thinking about character uh, and each of the characters that each actor will play, you're just brainstorming the possibilities. Once you cast actually you've begun to create parameters. Sure.
0: And I think in most productions, we can talk about it more as we get into the other two phases, but in most productions, parameters appear like there. that's not a concern that they won't ever. Yeah. And it's really clear that they haven't. <laughs> if that, if it gets to, to right. late stages, um, there's also been, I think when people think of creativity, they really most often are thinking of divergent thinking, right? Like a lot of people consider yeah. creativity to be a synonym for just originality. Um, and so we can talk a little bit more about the importance of the parameters, you know, as you get to the other stages, but in studies, there've been a lot of studies, a lot of them are in more of a business setting, right? A lot of them are, are try to, to try to yeah. figure out what, uh, conditions, uh, in what conditions facilitate creative thinking uh, so that people can think outside the box, right? To find solutions that aren't obvious, Um, And so this literature has led to a few sort of like pretty well-supported recommendations if you would like to enhance creativity. So one of the most uh, um, robust ones is uh, creating a positive mood. So either an overall positive uh, mood you can you can induce or a more specific one. I read at least one study that induced amusement, so used humor mm. to induce a positive mood. And then there's um, another sort of somewhat separate literature that shows reducing stress increases creativity. Mm. So that within your space um, and within your community, if you're thinking about this as a group exercise, that... Um, there is something to collegiality. There is something to feeling like you are a team, that you're in it together, that you all enjoy being there. There is something to doing some, you know, kind of bonding and trust and like overall just sort of like positive emotion building experiences to enhance the creative process.
1: Yeah, and I, to support that, I think... Um... The more that you can make the other people in the room, whether they're co-actors or as director, the other, you know, the actors and designers, that their ideas are valued and have yes. value. And the more sort of dialogue and go between you yes. can have um, and the more you can work associatively, even before you make uh, rigid connections, yeah. which means like you're kind of hanging out in the in-between place where it's like <laughs> you have an idea. And this is what Kateri and I are trying to do with acting and psychology, true. right? Is I, as as theater maker, have an idea, right? And I communicate it with... Uh, a, a, a teammate, a co-actor, and we have a conversation which synthesizes into something else. And you can actually do this as an individual, which is which we'll get to in terms of step yeah. two, where where these in these individual like attributes of the character building, you begin to f- associate them and find ways to connect.
0: So you're you're right on there. Actually, I actually did find a study that showed that when people were generating ideas, that it sparked even more creative output. If you not only gave them positive feedback, but you gave them in this study, it was like an experimental study where they gave them bogus feedback that yeah. their ideas were especially original. Yeah, so like imagine the creative uses task, right? That how many how many different ways can you use a brick. Um, and you said, you know, and if I, if I was like, oh my gosh, Anne, I have asked ten like thousand people and no one has ever said to paint the brick before, yeah. you know, that's the most original thing I've ever heard of. You would come up with another one in two minutes yeah. that is even more original because you believe that you're on that. So this isn't to say you should like butter people up and lie to them about how original they're doing, but mm-hmm. like starting from a place of receptivity yep. and openness and encouraging, and encouraging ideas. And another sort of key condition of creativity is being in an environment where people feel comfortable expressing themselves yes. and don't feel like they're going to be held accountable for mistakes, right? That you want to encourage people to offer half-baked ideas. You want to encourage people that there is no right answer yes. um, and that any contribution is is valid and welcome and, yes. and that will um, encourage the, that idea generation
1: too. Just yes to all of that. At one point, while I was preparing for this particular episode, I was thinking about: Is there a way to do it efficiently? Is there a way to be creative and create a character efficiently? And I realized that's a dumb question for creativity. I think it (laughs) takes time. Like I don't actually. I do think processes as one gets older, they figure out a more linear process that creates some efficiency. But I don't think the process, especially right now in this generative phase is is helpful again it's like you've read the studies like they've done studies
0: (gasps) that really strict time time constraints i mean again these measures are often time constrained because you have to have some sort of constraint on them but when you get a group together and you say come up with a new idea for this thing um you know you don't have entirely unlimited time you don't want to be like anytime in the next two years come up with a good idea for this because then there's no pressure at all um but telling someone like okay come up with a like you know disruptive uh, industry, disruptive new idea in the next 20 minutes, like, and then we're going to move on to something else. Like yeah. you need more time than that. You need time to let the ideas come out and evolve and grow and, and, you know, volley off each other and associate and, and yeah. all of those sorts of things. I love that
1: idea where you're giving people permission to kind of play and maybe even, and say wrong things. Oh yeah. And then also it's make me think of two things. Uh, the little bit of sort of on camera acting I've done is when they, they'll say, you know, the producer, or the director will say like, okay, that one was great. That take was awesome. Let's just do one more for fun. Uh-huh. And so they're telling you, they might not feel it, but they're telling you that they have a good one. Yeah. And so then that final one, you get to just play because totally. you're not trying to prove yourself. You're not trying to get it right. You're not worried about making mistakes. Yeah. And then that one often is, is the totally. best one.
0: There's one other uh, that I wanted to mention. There's one other sort of condition that enhances divergent thinking. And it's actually a tiny bit ca- counterintuitive to some people. And it actually, although it makes, I think you could argue for it either way, theoretically. Um, But uh, it's that when you are working in a team of people, uh, the more that people come together who are different from one another, who have had different experiences, who might have different identities, who have different sort of life paths and who are in the room for different reasons, um, that actually leads to more creative, uh, team-generated ideas. And the counter-hypothesis to this, right, the alternative hypothesis is that um, when like-minded people get together, people whose you know brains all work in the same way, or maybe who have had the same experience, they share common vocabulary, common experience. They, there's an efficiency to their communication, and they can really get to the heart of things really quickly because mm. they don't have to spend a lot of time translating to one another mm-hmm. or explaining themselves or perspective-taking for one another. Um, but that's actually not true. So mm-hmm. again, if you in like a business setting, if you get um, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but if you experimentally manipulate, you know, a group of uh, successful, you know, white male CEOs in a room and have them generate new ideas versus a group of uh, people who are of varying gender identities, varying races, varying life experiences, yeah. varying training. Right? You get an, an engineer in the room with an actor in the yeah. room with a, a an English lit you know expert uh, with a journalist, and they will come together and have a more original, sort of better, out, more outside the box idea um mm. then these more homogeneous. Teams. Yeah.
1: That makes me think of uh, a work life podcast episode uh-huh. which is hosted Very by fun. Adam Grant which is like the creative power of misfits I think is what it's called cool. the people who created the Incredibles were just full they were like the outliers at Pixar Interesting. <laughs> and they were like perceived as like grumpy complainers <laughs> and they and the beauty of getting them all into the room is that there was no complacency like these were the people mm-hmm. who are like no we can't do it that way like Violet's hair has to move because Vi- Violet's hair um, right the daughter in yeah. the Incredibles is like that's part of her character and she has to cover her face and then uncover it at the end and and they had never worked hair before, so you have the like artistic aspect of creating Violet's hair and the coding, you know, computer coding aspect of it. And they took them a really long time, and huh. they figured it out because they wouldn't they wouldn't give up. So that idea of of and sort of
0: outcome was incredible.
1: And the outcome was dun 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 incredible. <laughs> In some ways, I don't want to disagree with the diversity, but having a group of people, having a company, um, what whether it's extremely diverse or just people who sort of trust and know each other really well, I think, and that associating with each other and trusting each other has a lot of value. I was listening. Do you ever listen to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, the podcast? (gasps) It's so funny. So the most recent one was Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, who's around Schitt's Creek and a ton of other stuff. And people, you know, Conan was like, some people don't realize that you guys and John Candy and and, uh, Martin Short and there's more people, um, like all work together on... They're all Canadian and they mm-hmm. all did second city TV, which is called scTV and then it 's like, oh my god, wait i didn't know all those people worked with each other, but but the, the 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 reason is is like of course they worked with each other, right they had each other, they grew up with each other, they knew each other from high school from college, and were supporting each other, and that by knowing each other, by having that community that you can kind of trust and bounce ideas off of and not go at it alone you're actually going to be more creative that those people are going to support sure. your um, your productivity as a creative person. Yeah, and
0: I mean, I guess it's an empirical question if you wanted to like explicitly pit the principle of trust and, and openness of expression and this for, sort of forgiveness for making mistakes against the diversity uh, sort of principle you could you could cross that right like you and you could see which one kind of r- wins out in an experimental yeah. setting. But I suspect that in the studies that they've that they've done, and it's actually a different work life episode on creativity in <laughs> teams. Uh-huh. Um, I'll look up the name of it uh, that 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 they summarize some of this work. Um, I suspect that the process is that these more heterogeneous teams compared to the more homogeneous teams um, that they did have to get to a point of you know, sort of trust and and freedom of expression in order to, to reach the, the greater, um, divergent thinking state.
1: Yeah. I bet you're right. Yeah. Um, there's just one or two more things I'd like to say before we move on. Yeah. Um, I'm working on actually two, I have a lot of really lovely creative projects going on with other people, including this podcast. Uh, but my friend Mare and I, she was a guest last season are at the beginning stages of a devised project and devised is not something I do that often. I usually start with a script that's been given to me. Um, and it's really messy. And I love it, but it's, it's partly because I trust a mayor. Uh-huh. And, it's, and it's like, I want to just encourage whoever is listening to just embrace the kind of messiness. At one point, we were brainstorming people that we could workshop the script with in a couple months. And I mentioned someone whose work I really respect. And she goes, Yeah. But I don't know if they would be good at this stage. Like, Mm -hmm. they're not comfortable in the messy, right? Let's bring them in, you know, in stage two or three. And I was like, ah, cool. Not not
0: everybody is comfortable in the messy. It is so true. Step two is, it's interesting. So there are some people who would argue that there's actually really only two important phases of the creative process. But we argue that there's a sort of in-between Uh, transition that is a that is its own phase and the in-between transition is an experimentation phase and in this experimentation phase you're kind of doing a little bit of generating still right you're still brainstorming a little bit you're still you still have this open uh uh trusting environment Mm -hmm. where you can make mistakes Mm -hmm. but you're starting to trim you're starting to apply these uh limits apply these parameters apply these boundaries to what it is that you're doing and most of the time especially when you're working with a script the those are what dictate the the boundaries right there's a story that you need to tell um and to go back to the sort of brain analogy once when brains are developing once they reach out all of their axons and make connections with as pretty much as many other brain cells as they can Mm. then They send out some test runs, right? Like you basically, you have experiences in the world. You test some things out. You see what is connected to each other and what needs to remain strongly connected and which connections you can let go. Yeah. So that's called pruning, right? So stage one is proliferation and stage two is pruning. Uh, Very multicultural. I love the picture. I just,
1: this like gorgeous bush You know, uh, in my brain, that's like slowly getting shaped. Yeah, the Um, the
0: chia pet in your brain. So you 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 bust out your tiny little chia pet scissors, and you and you trim back some areas. And so again, this isn't. This is still. I think the experimenting phase is is transitional because it's still not linear. It's still not. Okay it's very we have now generated you know 806 ideas and uh right. you know it's very clear we need to get down to 21 and so yeah. we'll remove idea 1586 and 9 you know like <laughs> it's it's it, that's you 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 test it out right you you feel it out you work with other people you you ex- and and yeah. a lot of both in brain development and I think especially in theater the experimenting is experiential.
1: It's definitely experiential. Yeah. And I think you begin to have, I think what's so exciting, what I, how I'm excited inside of the conversation we're having right now is this idea of remaining present in each of the first step, in yeah. each of the three steps. And the first step, I'm like, don't think about the end, right? It's like when you get cast, you're like, but I don't know how to do this. Well, it's because you haven't done like the three or five or six months of work, yeah. right? But in this middle one, there, there, I have a lot of... Um, images or metaphors or analogies for this creative process. And and one of one is an iceberg, right? And, and what you have under the water is the rehearsal process and what the audience sees the final product is at the top. And I think in this middle step, you're beginning to look at what's above the water. You're beginning yeah. to sort of imagine what the final product could be. Um, and I'm thinking about uh, the Viewpoints book, which was written by Anne Bogart and Tina Lindau. And there's a chapter about composition. And they talk about, really throughout that book, but a especially in that chapter about essential ingredients. Like what are the essential ingredients of this story? Um, and they tell a story that there was like a costume designer from Miami Vice and they would go shopping. They're like, is that Vice? Yeah, that's Vice. Like that suit, <laughs> that dress is Vice, or that's not, that ring, that's not Vice. Um, and you're I'm just-, just going
0: to use that when yeah. I go shopping now. That's vi- I know, it's great. I'm What's like, Vice? That's Vice. That's Vice. It's going to become slang.
1: Yeah, right? What, what belongs in the story of Hamilton? What belongs yeah. in the story of Indecent? What belongs in Streetcar? What belongs in the Wolves, right? And what doesn't? what is what is inappropriate so that list of essential ingredients um has has value and finally there's a there's a viewpoints phrase i learned it from Ann Bogart called hold on tightly let go lightly Ooh. which and it's very it's a lot i think with improvisation too which is that idea of like i'm going to commit to this idea that my character walks with like really short steps right or my character uh you know stands with uh you know drops her voice and like stands with a really wide stance right and i'm going to hold on tightly while i work through this idea yeah. And I'm going to hang out for this rehearsal or this week, right? And then the lecco Lightly is the willingness to just to realize maybe some of the, to realize that I mean, inevitably some of these ideas are not good, totally. and I think sometimes when a when a characterization doesn't work or a narrative a, a play ultimately fails, is the playwright or the director or the actor or the designer is unwilling to let go of things. So totally. sometimes you, as audience member, are watching a story that simply has too many ingredients. Yeah, um, and I am definitely guilty of this. Um, as a director and probably guilty of it as an actor where you're like I'm going to add these like these 10 things are essential and actually just 3 of them are totally. really important.
0: Yeah, and I think this happens in a number of art forms, right? Like you see this is like a very common note on like your typical like project runway type you know perform sure. under pre- create under pressure sort of um, f- formulaic reality TV show where some of the the note is you need to edit more you have lots of good ideas but they don't all go together they don't all need to be in this thing and um Many years ago, I was—I happened to be in New York during one of the many iterations of the previews for the Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark musical, yeah. which was famous for many many things. It had a very extended preview process. Um, they ended up having major changes in the creative team um, in response to it. Um, they also were really pushing the boundaries of technology. They had 3D like flight technology throughout the theater, um, but a lot of actors were getting injured. Um, when when they were using this new technology. Um and uh it the 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 original director and I and we we saw a version that was directed by Julie Taymor, who is clearly a brilliant theatrical mind. You know, it was her concept for the Lion King, trans translating the Lion King on stage that sort of changed what was possible in a Broadway musical. Um so she really is a groundbreaking creative uh person. And when I when the first thing I said after I stepped out of the doors is there were too many ideas in that. Yeah. Someone needed to say to her, she needed to be able to say to herself, that's a cool idea. It doesn't go in this show. Right. It doesn't need to be here. Right. It doesn't need to add to that. Right. Um, so I, I think sometimes uh, the story gets jumbled with, with too many ideas to right. stay
1: in. Yeah, in, in Viewpoints training, this is one of many examples, you know, which is a vocabulary of how bodies move through time and space. It's really fun to bound and limit the ingredients or the yes. menu, right? And, and I think we can do tie-ins with, like, cooking when you're trying to make yep. a great meal and you stick too many things in it, right, or baking. Um, but, you know, you can create a, a gorgeous piece of artwork if you have your actors, five actors, only stand on a line. Yeah. Right, And they can move along the line, but they cannot leave the line. Totally. They have a, what would that be, a one dimension rather yep. than two or even three dimensions. I guess it's two dimensions. Where they are allowed to move through this, but it is, it is bounded. And in that boundary, the creativity tends to flourish because going back to the brick, yep. <laughs> right? If you only have the brick to think about, you're going to be forced to come up with creative ideas what, rather than having more ingredients. Yeah. I also think this is the stage that feels most... Associative, where um, this synergy of elements. I don't know where I heard that phrase, but I love this idea of synergy of elements and the chemistry or the alchemy begins Mm -hmm. to happen. Where you are, in terms of building a character, you're using as ifs, you're using substitutions. Those are just jumping off points. That's not the end point. That's a jumping off point where your imagination then has to connect that to the facts, the given circumstances of the character. And then The sort of the new given circumstances that your imagination creates and, and through the combination of these things, right? The cooking of these, you turn the heat on and all of a sudden you have a brand new thing idea that comes out of these separate parts. You're totally right.
0: And I think, and again, if, to go back to my brain analogy, the pruning that what determines, um, what, Which connections stay and which are pruned away in the brain has to do with connection, right? Has to do with which two things, which two cells are synchronized. Right, So the ones that are synchronized in time are the ones that remain connected. So in your experience, the things that go together are the ones that your brain says, it's important for me to consider these things as a pair or as a trio or however many uh, that that they do. So there is a lot about connection um, in, in the experimentation stage. And testing the metal of those connections and saying these connections deserve to stay, this, there might be a connection here, but it, it's it's too weak. It falls away yeah. for, for this storytelling. So in contrast to divergent thinking, which is thought to be a huge aspect of creativity, psychologists also focus on convergent thinking. And convergent thinking is really about noticing similarities or connections or patterns. And uh, so, again, I think in this two-step process, if step number one is, d- is generating all of these divergent branches or chia pet, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, appendages, then convergent thinking is again this streamlining and a saying, okay, these two things resonate with each other, these two things, um, a- a, you know, sort of additively, or even more than additively contribute to the story. So unlike the divergent thinking tests that are like, how many different things can you generate that do this? Convergent thinking tests are all about um, identifying the underlying connection between concepts. Okay. So, the most famous convergent thinking test is called the remote associates task. So, I have, Anne has never seen these before. I'm going to quiz <gasps> oh, her. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm nervous. So, Anne, what word ties together all three of these things? Cream, skate, and water.
1: Ice. Yes,
0: ice. Okay, how about this one? What word or concept uh, brings together duck, fold, and dollar? <laughs> I feel dumb. <laughs> we can skip one if you don't if you don't get it. Bill. Yes, Bill. Duck, fold, and dollar. Okay. This one is labeled as very hard, but we'll see. So it's, <laughs> right, is it supposed to be obvious
1: it. like you get it within a split second, or am I no. like three to five to ten seconds okay? No,
0: and I can actually talk. When I do these, I actually have a strategy that I have no idea if it's like empirically the best way to do uh-huh. it, but I can talk about that in just a second. Um, okay, so this one is labeled as very hard. Let's see if we can get it. <laughs> Dust, cereal, fish.
1: Dust. Cereal, <laughs> fish. I want to say fish gills, dust balls, dust bunny, and cereal <laughs> box.
0: <laughs> You're I circling am... around the right letter.
1: <laughs> B. Dust.
0: Dust. Cereal. Cereal. Fish.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Will you tell me? I think I, I I psyched you up. I think it was hard. Bowl dust bowl oh. cereal bowl fish
1: bowl i think with dust bowl it's hard cuz you're picturing um literal dust yeah. rather than like the geog- like the yeah. geography topography of fish bowl and what was the third cereal bowl oh bowl man. of cereal yeah
0: so when I do these, when I was stum- I was trying to get examples to quiz you on, and I stumbled upon a whole website. <laughs> we can post it on the website that has like dozens of them, yeah. and they're labeled by difficulty. And I just, w- I just like spent ten minutes like <laughs> them, and I found that actually I did better. The less intentionally I was trying to search through my memory, the more yeah. I kind of like metaphorically crossed my eyes and just sort of like blurred and didn't focus on what the interconnection between them. It popped into my mind. Yeah. So it was a little bit more of an insight like experience. Which I have is a couple,
1: I have an observation and a question. I think a lot of the work in our phase one, the experimentation, that happens just when I'm walking down the street. Like I'm walking my mm. dog, I'm walking from one place to campus to another. And my brain is just, I can tell it's working and I'm thinking associatively, but I'm not stressed about making yeah. a connection. This, I definitely felt like, <gasps> yeah. Well, I was you, like, you didn't I'm even, you. you didn't give me a time limit, but I just felt like there was one. And then the other thing is you said, <laughs> the you know, time limit is shame. <laughs> That's right. What's it called? Remote assessment? Remote associates. Associates. So can this be true? When I'm building a character, um, can the two associative parts not be too, um, too external characteristics? Like my character likes to stick out their tongue and guffaw, but can it be associative? Like my... Character likes to stick out their tongue while they're thinking, like, can the while they're thinking something internally? In other words, can the two associations be an internal experience and an external uh, expression of that thing? Or because that's how I work all the time, where I am like, oh. Definitely my character thinks this way. I discover that in rehearsal or before rehearsal. But I don't really know how to take that outside, to, to mm-hmm. present it on the outside of my body. Yeah, and then yeah. I get really excited. Where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is their pace. And this is the um, the gestures. Like I'm, I'm someone who always waves my hand. Or I'm someone who yeah. always gives hugs. Or I'm someone who likes to stick out their tongue. Or I'm someone who likes to laugh at people. Yeah. That's the associations that I'm constantly making is the connection between the inner life and the outer yeah. expression of that. Uh, there's the, the actor Michael Chekhov, who also right, was the nephew of Anton Chekhov, and he wrote a book to the actor, and he has this very famous exercise called Psychological Gesture," where you are creating the essence of your character as a repeatable gesture. Mm-hmm. And I do this a lot in an acting class. And so you're creating a shape and a movement that's repeatable that captures the psychology. Of the character. And when these are really good, the act of moving, the act of using your body is actually gonna circle back and make you feel a certain way emotionally, uh, feel a certain way physically, obviously, and then also think certain thoughts. And that interplay of these things that initially feel very separate from each other, like body, thinking, feeling, um, interconnect. Which I I I find fascinating in terms of sort of how human beings can have rich internal lives but are not particularly express like don't give themselves permission to be expressive. He also says in a separate book, and it's all about imagination, where it's like when let the character talk to you. It's very woo woo woo, but I love it. It's like you have this picture, you have this idealized picture of the character in your brain. Like, and I think novelists like Alice Walker talks yeah. this way, right yeah. is y- they then are just they're talking to you, they're communicating with you that that and I don't know how that works, like what your brain is doing, but it's not that y- that you it, there is a com- a back and forth yeah. conversation. it's not you just creating the character, the character is giving you information,
0: yeah, and again i it, I don't think that that's entirely mysterious if you think about it in terms of you drawing new connections that could you could easily um attribute that to hearing a character speak to you when your brain is just making a connection to between two things, yeah. but you happen to be thinking of a character when your brain is making that connection and you say, Oh, the character just told me this, right. And yeah. the other thing that is true, both in terms of these very, very basic brain pruning processes that I'm talking about, as well as actual creativity research is that one really important process for these connections to be tested, uh, to see which ones stick and which ones go away is sleep. There's some evidence that um, sleep is sort of the best for this, but uh, a sort of more distracted state can also do. Where you're not focused on the creative process, but you're allowing your brain to be occupied with something else. You have sort of a dual task, oh. and then you're able to churn
1: away on some of these connections in the background. Like simple physical, like I'm at home and I'm folding laundry or mowing the lawn, and yeah. then my brain is kind of working. Or in the even background.
0: like you know, or you work two jobs and you're going to your 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 yeah. you know your, your rehearsal during the day. And you're going to scoop ice cream, you know, uh, yeah. or whatever it is that you're doing, you know, for, for your other job. Um, and I'm always really amazed, you know, we talked about the, the time constraints in terms of minutes, right. That people usually don't come up with groundbreaking ideas in 20 minutes versus like having a few hours to work on something. Yeah. But I'm always especially amazed when I hear of professional theater companies who get new shows done in like, you know. 10, 10 hour days, I'm like, that's just not enough time to let the ideas ruminate and connect and not connect and like all of that sort of thing. And I think if you look at highly successful productions, a lot of times they were forged over multiple, multiple iterations of workshops they were forged uh, in more protected timeframes. You know, you think about some of the work that they do at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, for example, they have a very long rehearsal process. Yeah. And I think it shows. Agreed. I think the shows have, are really, they really have done a great job of the third step, sure, <laughs> which is synthesizing, right? So that the third step is to take all of these different ideas and the ones uh, that, that you've generated and you take the ones that you've experimented with that are the most promising and you you sort of uh, synthesize them to make sure that they are co- that, that they are coordinated they're layered in the right order that they are sequenced in the right way And in the case of theater, that all of those things are happening in the service of the story and of the narrative of the main points that you're trying to get across.
1: Yeah. And I think I want to move forward with three. There's one really important thing that belongs in two or maybe three, which is this idea of metaphor.
0: I think that a good metaphor is your guiding principle for what makes it through two to
1: three. Yep. Great. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Um, it's a filter. Yeah. It both, it liberates you, but it also confines and creates parameters for the world, both of which are important. Uh, Chrissy Montor larsen who's the director of The Secretary that uh, Curious Theater is producing, came to talk to my students, and she, she had a metaphor for two of the characters, a character named Shirley, and she called Shirley a peach. She's a peach. And she called Ruby a grapefruit. Mm. And I love that they're both fruit. I love
0: Ruby and Grapefruit. Ruby Grapefruit. I know it works. Off the start. I love And what it. she
1: was, she was uh, the, the the metaphors stand on their own, but they actually are in relationship to each other. Oh. So Shirley is really soft on the outside, like it's. Uh, she's played by Leslie O'Carroll, whom I adore. Um, and Leslie has this sort of beautiful, you know, you love Leslie when you look at her, <laughs> and and the way she plays her is this very cheerful grandma type character, and she's chipper and she's soft on the outside, but she's actually a killer, like. She she has a hard pit in the middle, right? Whereas Ruby is the opposite, played by Kathy Brady. She is, um, She's got this hard exterior, which she has sort of learned over time, but inside she's super soft. And so these inform the director and the actor.
0: I mean, I think a good metaphor has multiple aspects to it, right? There's yeah. multiple analogies. Like what yeah. you gave was the heart of the metaphor, that she is soft on the outside and then it has a hard pit on the inside. But... Most people have experienced eating peaches. We also know that peaches ripen over time. Yeah. We also know that peaches have a different quality when they're sort of raw and when they're baked. Yeah. We know that sometimes the skin peels off. Yeah. Right. We know that the meat inside can be dense or uh, mealy. Yeah. Like there's lots of other. There's lots of other qualities to a peach, peach, peaches pair with certain things. Yeah. Right. Like you have peaches and cobblers and crumbles and there's a Southern, uh, to call someone a peach to me has Southern connotations. So there's really rich branches. Yes. Pun intended. Thank you. Yeah. You know, to, to a good metaphor that is a concrete
1: hook. Hook into it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm just thinking that the actor is like, okay, well, the private me, the authentic me is the pit. Right. But then the thing that the public sees is the soft, like cute, peachy colored. Yeah. Exterior. And
0: even that even having two different
1: faces of a
0: character is pretty is is pretty complex.
1: Yeah. Now let's be happy in in step three, like grounded in step three. Yeah. Um, it reminds me, uh, last summer, I read an article about a visual artist, a painter named Peter Sachs in the New Yorker. And I was, I was texting Katir. I was like, Oh my God, this guy, he's, he does sedimentary painting where he layers in, he'll do six or seven layers on one painting with different materials. He'll have some paint and then he'll have some like newsprint and then he'll have some fabric and he'll have some text and only some of it, kind of like an iceberg, only some of it is is actually seen by the viewer. And I love that idea that you've done these three steps of yeah. work, right? You've been dutiful in a good way. And you you, but only some of the icebergs, some of the sedimentary material is gonna rise to the surface. And I think that's okay. You want that like deep yeah. history and time to build and then to to allow the audience to see something, some of which you are in control of, right? Yeah. And then maybe some other things. Some audience will see, some won't. You yeah,
0: know? it provides an anchor. I think, as as Anne was describing this painting to me, it sounded really textured. Yeah, that, it is, and 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 it sounded as though the finished artistic product is a surface. Yes, but what creates that surface is really varied. And mysterious. And
1: sub subtextual, if yeah. you want to use an acting term, right? Yeah.
0: And, you know, I think that when... I think it, you can often tell, maybe not always, maybe there's some people who are like super good at pulling this off, but I think you can often tell when someone tries to create a textured landscape without that depth yeah. of what creates it. If they're just like, I'm going to make a character and they're going to have this weird quirk, it just comes off as like this uh, ill-thought-out... Non-committed, general, general, vague, not specific. You know, mm-hmm. again, sort of ungrounded performance, and so, and we've. T- I think it's interesting. I think we've talked a lot in other episodes before about um, the importance of stockpiling generating yeah. things that you don't yeah. know how you'll use right, them right right because they create that depth those anchors that right. experience that those things you can go back to
1: collecting and even I'm just thinking the value of improvising even with a scripted material like if Katiri and I are playing a scene with a with a pre-existing script would having an opportunity to kind of improvise uh, the relationship improvising text which allows us to kind of fill the fill the holes mm-hmm. in right so we have even more specificity I think the other thing
0: that is important to note is that These three phases, these sort of um, generating ideas and experimenting and then this sort of synthesized final product, um, it also corresponds to the the sort of process of creating art versus the final product of it. And that to create a good product, a good process helps, right? So like there is this, we've laid it out as this sequential, you go through the process to create a product but there are actually a lot of people, and I would actually say most educators are in this boat, who say that one of the societal values of the artistic, uh, of art, is to encourage people to engage in the process regardless of product, Yes, right? That the stages of generating and experimenting and trusting and working in teams and uh, and doing all of that thing, that that has value in and of itself, Yeah, and a lot of... Acting exercises, a lot of applied theater where you're taking the principles of acting and applying them to other endeavors say the process is enough. And the way Mm. we've outlined it, the final stage in the process is whittling down and deciding on a final product. And that is kind of putting a bow on the process in a way that you might not get if you're
1: using it for one of these other Purposes. Can I add to this? And I think what's a little tricky about this final process is an actor um, who's in a situation where there's a director actually has to rely on the director to some extent to make some decisions in this refinement process that I think actors cannot always, they cannot experience the show from the outside.
0: There are some works of art that it's very clear have have overemphasized the process over the product sure and they are borderline unintelligible to the <laughs> audience and the actors are like that was amazing <laughs> and you're like and so it was a little indulgent exactly indulgent <laughs> borderline masturbatory like there's this sort of like there's this there's a sort of like well i'm glad they had fun doing that yeah um, but i didn't get anything out of it
1: uh so yeah and um Ah oh, there's so much I want to say. I want to I want to talk about I think the director's job in a tech week tech I'm gonna say week, that's what I know best, not tech month. Um, <laughs> tech six months uh, is, of course, you're bringing in the technical elements, right? You're bring you're finally, the actors are on stage with, the, with all the various designs. I think a director can go wrong when they just focus on tech. I think the point of a technical, a tech rehearsal week and dress rehearsals is that you are threading the needle between these elements, right? So the actors are doing their work up through the rehearsal process in some ways, often separate from design, right? Unless you have brought in some costumes sure. or brought in sound. And then the, all of a sudden the designers get to see and hear their work. But if these remain separate, if the director is only talking to the designers and not welp- welcoming the actors into the process and not synthesizing, so that when you have th- those two things together, the actors are informing the design and the design is informing the acting, then you failed. Then that's yeah. not as successful as it can be if you actually allow all those ingredients to synergize, synergize, I don't know, synthesize. Yeah. Right? And create a new thing that is better than the separate parts. Yes. Yes. This is all so very <laughs> theoretical. We really right. like wanted
0: to have a few examples of when this is done well, and I'm glad you brought up the integration with design because the first example that both Anne and I immediately agreed was an unambiguous like success <laughs> in doing this is um, the two part production of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. So good, <laughs> <laughs> and you know the the that. Show is technically groundbreaking, so for, we won't have any spoilers. We'll keep all the secrets. But those of you who haven't seen it, there is literal sort of magic in in terms of illusion work that but is done on stage. on stage that's done live. You know, th- not three, CGI three or six times a week. Um, and so the the technical sort of prowess that, that had to achieve just the illusions, I think it, it, was, it was 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 um, revolutionary, but. I actually think the unexpected surprise for me when I saw it was the integration of all the other technical elements. It is not a musical. It was nominated for a Tony Award for choreography. Stephen Hoggett. Because all of the scene transitions were choreographed. There was music. The lighting changed along with it. And all of the actors moved in coordination and... With musicality in order to pull off some of the transitions. And some of them, because of this coordination, had. An element of magic or illusion right, to right. them as well.
1: That has a that play has an extremely strong set of essential ingredients inside of it. Um, not just the Harry Potter characters, but you have staircases that are used constantly yeah. to create shape, and they they move in the transitions. You have cloaks, you have wands, you have magic. There's a lot of examples of that, and the actors; those are used multiple times in multiple ways, not just with one way. So there's this transformation of how I use my cloak. Yes. So for example example, a character, there's a lot of tables, right? So the, the actors, who are not per se dancing, but Stephen Hoggett is this amazing movement yeah. choreographer. He did Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time. Yeah. He, he's part of Frantic Assembly, which is a British company. Um, but these actors are moving furniture on stage, with, clo- and then they have some sort of gesture with their cloak, and then the cloak reveals the piece of furniture. So yeah. it becomes this very joyful... It's productive. It's efficient because they're moving stuff yeah. from transitioning. But then you, as the audience, are like, and it's it's all familiar. Yeah. They're using these sacred objects in multiple ways. It's extremely satisfying. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is,
0: so I after um, I knew that we were going to be talking about this, but then before we r- recorded this episode, I got to go visit some family in Northern California, and I saw the San Francisco production of it. So I'm su- <laughs> I'm super lucky. I'm <laughs> in New York and in San Francisco, and I was sitting there trying to think of how to explain what is so satisfying, what. Mm-hmm energize it you know what in the creative process was the right amounts of of synthesis to tell the story and what i came up with was is that it's a stage play about a magical universe i was just thinking and what is magic right magic is seamless transitions that are both beautiful and unexpected at the same time right there's an element of surprise to magic where you're like i didn't expect that to happen because things are defying the laws of nature in front of you but yet it's very fluid. There's a fluidity and magic is all about transitions and they focused entirely on transitions. And then the third element that you pointed out too, is that one of the rules of magic is you never do the same trick twice, right? You never use the same mechanism Mm. to achieve the same outcome because the, this is more like the illusionist science, science of illusion is that like once people have seen it, once they can't help try to figure out how it happens. And so you don't do that again. And so they used those base principles of how you make magic delightful. Yeah. And they made those the cornerstone aesthetic elements of the
1: entire production. I'm just thinking another way of saying it, I totally agree, is you're witnessing something that seems impossible, right? Definitely. You're witnessing a show that's like, how are they doing this (laughs) on stage eight times a week? It seems impossible. and, And there's this joy in watching it. So the second one is... Hamilton. Um, and to me, what is, there are many many um, impossible... There's many sort of truly impressive exemplary aspects of this. And needless to say, this took years to put together. Um, but what I find amazing is that Lin-Manuel Miranda put together the biography of Alexander Hamilton. He was reading it, I think maybe on his honeymoon. It's Ron- true.
0: It was reading it okay. on his honeymoon. Ron
1: Chernaus, right, yep. By a bio on Hamilton, which I think came out in four, And he's like, oh, this reminds me of Tupac. Like he was thinking about a particular artist and by putting together the history of a dude who lived 200 250 years ago and aligning it with 20th 21st century music and as I'd found this quote America then is told by America now yeah he when he was selling this idea I think he performed a song for the Obamas and they were like Okay, like, what are you making? He's like, oh, yeah, I'm like using, I'm doing a hip hop music. I don't know if he called it a hip hop musical, but I'm like, music with these, I'm doing a musical with these like musical genres, but it's about Alexander Hamilton. And the Obamas were like, okay, like basically that sounds really <laughs> stupid. And he created this, he he sort of created a thing that seems impossible. And these two very divergent yeah. ideas totally work together. And you have a story that's all about these white men or white women told by base, a cast that base has almost no yeah. white people or very few white people in it.
0: Yeah. And I, and I, again, finding the, finding the, the repeating patterns that tell the story. Well, makes me think of the
1: music. I mean, the repetition. Yes. you know, any good musical is going to have a callback to.
0: Yes. Well, good, uh, uh, good musicals employ, uh, repetition of musical themes. Great yeah. musicals do that in a way that informs the story, right? So if character yeah. one sings a song like this and character two sings a song later on, that you go, oh, these two characters have something in common because they're singing with the same melody, even yeah. though they're two different people in two right. different situations. And and I, I think that um, the process of creating that show is also a testament to the importance of experimenting. I think yes. I... I, I I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda, I suspect that he has no problem generating ideas. I think he's a very divergent thinker. I think he's one of those types that keeps a notebook with him, which is, again, another um, uh, recommendation for cultivating creativity is to write down and document your ideas. Um, So a lot of people will keep notebooks with them or have apps on their phone or whatever to like just not let good ideas slip them by. And... Um, I think he then very smartly surrounds himself with creative teams that help him edit and identify patterns and toss out, you know, um, toss out the ideas that are good, but uh, that are not serving the story sort of at that particular point in time. Mm -hmm. And Alex Lackamore, his primary uh, collaborator, they've talked about how it's very important to them to have a positive personal relationship that they don't they are not a grouchy uh you know sandpapery creative team yeah that they challenge each other but they love each other dearly and yeah. and that it's really important to their creative process that they stay in a positive
1: space which i love and is empirically supported
0: so i thank you memoir manuel
1: i love what you're saying that these these things that we're holding up as these exemplars of creativity it returns to how well you're telling the story yeah right that that how you know going back to how do we know or finishing up in some ways with how do we know that we've succeeded right yeah. that the are the choices that we've made in terms of the essential ingredients and the synthesis synergy the interaction the chemistry of these pieces is not egotistical right it's not like yes. oh this is going to just be such a great idea but that it returns to it helps to tell the clearest possible yeah. story. And often what happens, I think, in the stuff that's super bold is a, an idea might seem crazy. Um, uh, it might seem like it might not work, again, like Hamilton told yeah. with, like, 21st century music. And then it, it does. Um, similarly, I, I, I'm fascinated. We talk a lot about... Um, Unconventional casting. Right. Mm-hmm. And and even casting um, actors who may have visible or, invis- you know, various types of disability and how that is not just to serve repre- to, just to represent different types of people, but to actually tell an even more a bolder version of the same story, either a better version of that story or just a more exciting version yeah. of that story.
0: You were going to talk about um, good versus great characterization, yeah, too. Yeah, I just, I
1: just have a couple examples, but I think it ties back to like the ballsiness of of including ingredients in a particular characterization that when you initially think about it might seem too bold or too crazy, uh-huh. but work. So, um, uh, for example, I think Christian Bale's performance in Ford the film Ford versus Ferrari um uh, It just makes me want to see all of his performances um, is exemplary because he's it's an extreme characterization. But somehow all of these discrete elements, these ingredients that he's put in there to me work. Mm. And with an actor who could similarly, when I saw Jeffrey Wright in Top Dog, Underdog on Broadway uh, 20 years ago now, it was it was it was almost clownish how big the performance was. It was extremely bold and physically extreme and vocally extreme and yet some he somehow all the choices fit inside that particular character and that particular actor was able to execute all of it either had the guts but also I think the technique to execute it and I think the final thing is a lack of self consciousness. That you can you can do good performances that have a little bit though. You can read in the care in the actor like, how am I doing? Am I good? Audience, you like this? You like this? I'm making good choices, right? And I think really really good performances yeah. have sh- completely shed that. So that of course an actor is aware that there's an audience, right? Yeah. And is there is potential to get distracted by these real world distractions, and yet you are doing so. M- you're 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 negotiating so many tools yeah. and so many sort of ideas with inside of this character that there is play that there's, yeah. there's child's play inside of all of the technique.
0: I think what you're, what you're pointing out is that I think one maybe critical element to this final stage is a little bit of confidence that you've reached it. Yeah. You know yes. what I mean? That, that, yes. the, that the synthesis is strong enough and that the storytelling is strong enough that you can actually recognize it from inside the artistic process and i think the that where you end up if you imagine this sort of like bursting and generating of all these ideas and then this sort of like containing and constraining them down yeah. to tell a story you know we were arguing about what a good metaphor was this uh, for, you know the, what 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 a good metaphor for this kind of final product was and um and one of the things that uh, that we came up with was that you sort of have this um this Perfectly shaped container, yeah, but that has a re- resonant energy inside, yeah. Uh, to which someone else said it's like a pulsating jellyfish, I love the right? pulsating jellyfish. Like, <laughs> jellyfish have boundaries, but yeah. and, but they also it's per are fluid, but isn't the water moving in and, and they out of them to expand contract, yeah. you
1: know? But they're a th- they're their own thing, <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's a beautiful metaphor, um, of and I always picture a, a, a water bottle with the water being what's inside, yeah, and the and the, of course, the, the actual water bottle being the container, but Barney Ohan. Lynn, who's a city company member talks you can that can be a really beautiful metaphor for just the human body like, sure. like what are you allowing the audience to see? are you just seeing the container right that's really precise and really uh, a particular form and really like in control? Or are you allowing what's inside of that character to kind of come yeah. out to permeate to permeate out? And
0: I think that sometimes I, th- I don't think that people everybody it, within an artistic process always you know by opening night has full confidence that the entire process is working but i think that that one of the things that you're pointing out is that it helps to have for the stuff that you're in control over, it helps to either have confidence or trust that the larger container is in place. Yes, right. So, like, if you are the character, if you have a clear vision of that container, and then you're you're still allowing some given play, you might not be thinking at, at, at every single moment of your performance, like I'm crushing this. It doesn't matter what people are thinking,
1: but you have confidence that you've you've hit the right. Yes, you know, mark. Um, So I just want to summarize, because I think summarizing is is valuable. To me, my takeaways: think about what your process is. We've created three steps for it. It could have five steps. It could have two steps, whatever. But giving yourself permission um, to take up a lot of time in that initial generative process, and then locating what that transition is, which usually is with the director's help from right in the editing. I think a really good director doesn't have a long process Long, wandery speech on day one, but um, my most recent experience: the director took five, seven minutes to talk to begin to talk about his parameters of his version of this play, and I found that extremely helpful. So the idea of generating, uh, editing, um, refining, and that idea of slowly kind of containing the mess, and then also just the synergy of the elements, giving yourself permission to to first start with these separate actor tools, and then. Uh, giving yourself permission both to name the essential ingredients and then to see how they interact with each other.
0: Yeah. And in general, give yourself time, give give yourself permission to fail. Anyone who's ever created something really creative will also tell you that they have 10 bad ideas before breakfast. So you don't have to have all of your ideas be brilliant and worthwhile. Um, Try to create spaces that are positive, that don't have those time constraints. Uh, Collaborate with people who aren't like you. And get some sleep, folks.
1: Yeah. (laughs) thanks
0: for listening
1: yeah on that note um everybody take a nap bye bye next up is my interview with ann bogart theater director opera director author professor co-founder and co-artistic director of city company and one of my mentors thank you keep listening I am so excited to invite and have Anne Bogart on our podcast. Anne Bogart is an American theater and opera director. She is currently one of the artistic directors of City Company, which she founded with Japanese director Tadashi Suzuki in 1992. She is a professor in Columbia University School of the Arts graduate theater program, where she runs the directing concentration. She also is the author of three books of essays on theater making, A Director Prepares, and then you act, and what's the story? She's a co-author with Tina Landau of The Viewpoints Book, a practical guide to viewpoints training and devising techniques and my personal Bible, Conversations with Anne, a collection of interviews she has conducted with various notable artists, was published in March 2012. Bogart's influence is felt throughout the contemporary theater. Through the widespread adoption of Citi's training methods of viewpoints and Suzuki, her myriad groundbreaking productions, and at Columbia University through her guidance of such diverse talents as Diane Paulus, Robert O'Hara, Rachel Chavkin, and many others. And personally, I am over the moon to have you, Anne, on our podcast. You are a mentor of mine. I got to study with you while I was at Columbia and fell in love with the Viewpoints training. And I stayed with City several times, and I also teach your work to my students at DU. So thank you, thank you so much.
2: Hi, Anne. I'm so glad to uh, continue our relationship over the years.
1: Yeah, great. Oh, I'm giddy. So... A priority of uh, the conversations that Kateri and I have on this podcast are to discuss best practices when it comes to a particular acting tool or directing tool or uh, ideas. And so to that end, can we start with one or more examples of successful creative moments for you, either as an individual artist or as part of a collaborative group? What were you doing to feel and be successful?
2: Can you define best practices?
1: Yeah, by best practices, I mean sort of a tried and true way of doing a thing.
2: So the most important thing to do is to listen. And I think if you listen, you feel respected. And if you feel respected, you actually value the relationship. So I think the the successes that I've had come through uh, a mutual agreement to listen to one another and to create things that express something we learn from one another.
1: Yeah, I've been practicing listening more as a human being, as a parent, as a partner, as a teacher. And when I am able to do it, uh, I find that it is very nutritious, that it gives me a ton of information, that it creates, that it empowers the other people in the room. Um, One of the things I teach to my undergraduate directing students is uh, something I've learned from you, which is one of the goals of a director is to give voice to the other voices in the room. Um which, as you're saying, sets everyone up for more success. How do you teach the creative process to your graduate directing students?
2: I don't actually teach. They teach me. What I mean by that is you create the circumstances in which they can make work, and then my job is to respond to it as honestly as I can based on what I'm actually experiencing but not what's in my head. I just listened to something this morning, um was a discussion with a, a, a scientist who said the worst thing you can do is apply your thinking to something, you know, nothing about. And so to approach, um, I don't like the word teaching cause it's not really, that's not what ref- is the activity, but is to bring attention to something and be able to respond to something new being born in the room. So yeah. I hope certainly with my director's, that I give them the opportunity to create by pushing them hard and giving them deadlines. Then I try to watch with my entire, uh, all of my sensibilities, not just my thinking, but also my sensations and uh, perceptions, et cetera. And then respond as honestly as I can as to speak the truth from there. And that, I guess you could call teaching. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I find that, I have a, when I'm watching a piece that my students are doing as directors or actors, or I'm trying to cast something. I have this uh, preformed notion of how it should be done, and I have this process that goes on where I try and dismantle that, or I'm constantly assessing if how uh, how right my my prejudged notion of it is versus how how. Right. And exciting. The thing that I'm actually watching is. And and I think as I mature, I've gotten better at throwing out the prejudgment and just dealing with the thing in the room, <laughs> which feels more real. Can you break down the creative process uh, into smaller discernible parts? I mean, we're well aware doing an hour long or 90 minute podcast on creativity that we're just hitting the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Um, we broke it into three parts, uh, just to simplify the conversation into the act of generating, uh, editing, um, which to me ties to some of the chapters in the Viewpoints book of creating the world of the play, finding the essential ingredients, and then refining for a final product for an audience. Do you ever do that? Can you, uh, I remember you talking about on a video on American Theater Wing about as a director being a good beginner or middle or end director. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Do you break it into smaller parts when you are tackling a project as a director?
2: Well, there's the pre-rehearsal process, which is usually takes me about two years of study. Um, for example, I just came back last night from Minneapolis where we're doing our Bacchae at the Guthrie. That study is um, uh, such a rich period, which is studying Euripides, studying ancient Greek theater, uh Reading the text in ways that uh, open something in me. That said, then the next phase is I bring everything that I've studied into the room with the designers and the actors, and sort of present it to them things that inspired me, which can take you know hours to actually talk through. Yeah. But what I found in that second phase with the Bakai is that very little of what I brought into the room. Euripides didn't want it, nor did the company. In other words, it was too many ideas. Yeah. So There's a period of really putting forth all of the possible ideas and images and um, ways to begin and ways to proceed, and then letting them go and listening to the play deeply. But I think that I hope that those two years of preparation allows me to be in the room and let all of that stuff go and just be present with enough feeling that I've in a way been immersed in mind body etc and then once these things are laid out then i create a situation where the actors can make work and show oh. me what what they've got yeah and as you say the word editing and then i edit what they do cut and edit rearrange cut and edit and rearrange and then the final process for me is the audience is the audience yeah. Uh, will tell you what's false. You know, the audience will tell you a lot. So those would be, for me, the three steps.
1: When you're bringing a piece to your collaborators, to your actors and designers, and you've done two years of preparation, about how long is that process in an ideal situation?
2: <laughs> when you, maybe it takes you know me the- about six hours to talk. I talk for about six hours, yeah, with breaks.
1: Yeah. To share your work with them. I find it very difficult as, uh, I guess I'm going to speak as an actor right now. Um, but also as a director to, to know, I come in full, I've generated a bunch of ideas I'm so excited about. Like maybe the character moves like this, or maybe this relationship is like this, or maybe this idea is an essential ing- ingredient. And I think I find it difficult to edit out. Like you get attached to certain ideas and how do you know when an idea is dead? Do your actors tell you, do your designers tell you, do you just know it intuitively?
2: Actors tell me the designers tell me and the play tells me. The play tells you, I mean, all of the work that I do and all the excitement and the ideas only give me the right to enter the room. That's all it does. Mm. If I haven't done that, I can walk in the room and then shut the door into the rehearsal hall. That's all. After that, I have to listen in a different way. So yeah, it's the actors, it's the designers and the play who will reject my ideas.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm obsessed with this idea of the synergy of elements. I mean, I think one important fact of, of making something creative is that the essential ingredients are not necessarily yours, but how you put them together, the alchemy, the chemistry of them, the, um, which then kind of transforms the nature of the elements, is what can make a good creative process. Do you ever think that way, or is, or can you think of an example with one of the pieces you've directed where two two distinct elements, the way they kind of mashed together, came together was electric.
2: Well, you know the the, the person who best described what you're saying is Chuck Me, who said, you know, who, who, who you know he'll he'll lift things from the internet. I mean, not very little of what he writes is actually originally from him. And so he asked the question, "What makes it mine? What, why right. is it me place?" And his answer, and I would say the same thing because it's so smart. He said, "His taste." In other <laughs> words, his taste that makes it his. And I would say the same thing in, in relation.
1: <laughs> like you're adding the ch- the Chuck. Me is adding the Chuck. spices to the to the recipe in some I, ways.
2: I don't think of it as adding it. I think it's how he arranges it is based on his taste.
1: Sure. Okay. <laughs> One of my favorite, uh, city company productions was Bob Rauschenberg America. I remember seeing it at BAM, uh, I think when I was in grad school, maybe around 2000. Uh, and I'm trying to pinpoint what I, You know,
2: what I, it was, it's right after nine 11. Yes. Was, yeah, that was pretty meaningful too.
1: And, and, uh, Sure. But I also think it had to do with the world of the play. And I just left, and, and this does tie to 9-11, I just left feeling so proud to be an American. And and yep. and I know you talk about this, like, how does, you've said about this, you just said in this conversation about being in the room and really letting something impact you with your five senses. I was so, I felt so much joy and pleasure watching that. Um, can you unpack that piece for me a little bit like besides the fact that it came after 9-11 what do you think works about that particular
2: well we made it pre-9-11 and its meaning changed radically after 9-11 and I I too felt a lot of joy and pride from it especially at BAM which felt like coming home yeah but you know there were other periods where it was not so great with Bob Rauschenberg like right after 9-11 we took it to Stanford Connecticut and people couldn't stand it because they were so upset and they could barely be in the room. Also, in 2004, huh. five, we brought it to Paris to a very left wing theater, uh, huh. Beaumont, huh. where a place I've admired and seen a lot of work. And I was so excited to be there. Man, when you revealed the American flag at the beginning, they hated it. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: They
2: hated it. <sighs> So it's a piece that, you know, successfully so, is very responsive to the context in which it's presented. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, I too, feel great joy about that piece and pride and all kinds of things. But it doesn't always work that way, unfortunately. Oh,
1: wow. I remember I sat in on some Steel Hammer rehearsals at Actors Theatre of Louisville in, I think, 2014. And there was a moment, and I asked you about it afterward, where... And you were working with with your company, with supremely professional actors. There was a moment that wasn't working. It was at near the beginning of the play, and I remember the space being sort of oddly shaped, and and you were just trying to. They were everyone was trying to figure out how to get this group of actors on stage, yeah. and uh, you let them figure it out. And it took a long time. It took forty five minutes or more. And you know you could have just solved it in five minutes. And I asked you, I asked you why you did that. Do you remember what? Do you remember why you did that, or what you? I can tell you what you said, but
2: I don't. I don't. I don't remember what I said certainly, but I do remember struggling. And what we were struggling with is we kept writing introductions that would contextualize the piece for yeah. an audience. Yeah. My story of that is 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 I literally wrote, or I, somehow we put together a text that the actors would come out and say, "Here we are, blah 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 blah," and then and I don't. I don't remember that I could have fixed it faster, but what we ended up doing is cutting all of it and just having the actors come on yes. one by one start to dance to the music. Yeah, And and that seemed more powerful than any sort of contextualization, which felt somehow cheap. Yeah. I don't remember really feeling that I could have solved it quicker. I just remember being frustrated with it and then being so relieved when we realized <laughs> that it was just actually start the play rather than trying to set up the
1: play. Yeah. I remember when I asked you in that particular case, and, and I wonder if the point I'm thinking of, you had already cut the text. So it was the staging of it was you were empowering the group. They had to solve it for themselves. And I say oh. that a lot with my actors and directors is, is especially, I guess with directing students, which is the more that you can empower your collaborators to actually make the choices or believe they are the ones making the choices. Then the, they just have more stage presence. There's much more buy-in, um, um, which I. And ownership. Yeah, and ownership.
2: It's all about ownership.
1: Um, do you use. I find metaphor an amazing tool. I find it difficult to f- always find a metaphor for a play or a character. Uh, but once I do, it's pretty generative. Do you tend to think in metaphors?
2: I think theater is metaphor. Sure. And it's why I'll, I'll never make a film or TV program because that language is, for the most part, except for some highly artistic film. Directors, most film and television is descriptive, and the theater is expressive and expresses itself through metaphor. And so, I'm I'm actually only interested in metaphor. In metaphor, yeah, yeah.
1: This might be too general, but I'm going to give it a shot. When do you know you've succeeded in creating something good, successful, hot?
2: Well, it's all in the audience. I mean, right. you feel it, and it's not something they fake. No, it's some. It's a way they respond. The way they change breathing. So it's, you know, I'm the first audience member, so I'm hoping that the actors change my breathing. But then I, uh, you know, then, then I hope that the audience has the same experience I do.
1: Yeah, Can you give me one or two examples of actors whose creative process you really admire?
2: Well, Ellen Lauren is, is like a, uh, she's like driving a Rolls Royce, you know, as an actor. <laughs> and um, we did a production, I don't know if you saw it, Anne, it was called Room. Yes, I put- saw it
1: downtown in what was that space?
2: Oh, oh. Women's Project? Yeah. Probably. That's great. Yeah. Well, the first I think it's close to 20 minutes she barely moves. Yeah. You know, she she's she's actually sitting in the audience as the audience comes in and then she gets up stand walks on stage, turns around and for the first 18 minutes of very complicated text, she barely moves. She's actually moving microscopically um, in, in ways that we took from pictures of, of Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. But I asked her one I said, Ellen, how do you do it? How do you stand in the middle of the stage with so much life in you and not move? I mean, that's, that's really hard to do. And she said, yeah. She said, you know how when you, if you've got like a Shakespeare monologue or soliloquy and you push against a wall— and you can speak yeah. really beautifully, but then when you stop pushing against the wall, it all goes flat. Yeah. She spent years pushing against walls and seeing what that did to her abdominal structure. <laughs> and then walking to the middle of the room and recreating that physical structure as she's standing there. Yeah. That kind of, you know, deep layers of 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 setting up the body in order to be successful with an audience. It's really extraordinary to me.
1: Uh, Yeah. It actually reminds me, I have an Ellen Lauren quote on my door, um, which just, I'm fascinated with the relationship of speaking and moving as an actor and think that actors tend to focus more on the speaking because it's easier for us than what our bodies are doing. Uh, But Ellen, of course, is a master of doing both at the same time. I wonder if—and this actually sort of ties to a young actor versus a more mature actor—but thinking about directing, what do you love about your graduate students' uh, directing sensibility? And I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, like, because they're young, is there something about being a youthful director that is charged versus—that uh, is advantageous versus w- w- the advantages of being a more mature director that you learn along the way?
2: Well, first of all, at Columbia, they're not always young. I mean, I, I'm, there was a director who went through the program very recently whose daughter was at the same time in mm. the graduate school in film in Columbia. I mean, it's really not a matter of youth. There are some directors who come in directly out of undergrad, and I think, oh, my God, just get your training done yeah. and get on with it. Yeah. Know? But come I in really at all ages. So it's really not so much youth or elder, older. Everybody has their own timetable. So it's really, I mean, being in Columbia, it's about having three years to actually try and try and try and try different ways. So I think it's not so much age, but having, having that space to actually try things out is, is formative.
1: Mm. What do you appreciate about being a director who's now done this for a few decades?
2: You mean taught directing?
1: No, being a director or or either. I was thinking being a director. What uh, advantages are there to being really experienced at it?
2: It actually can be a disadvantage. I mean, I I, I still feel like even with City Company, when we're starting a production, I think, oh, they should hire a professional. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing.
1: (laughs) The company you founded. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I think, oh, they'll be happier with somebody who actually knows what they're doing is such a lummox.
1: <laughs> what are you still um what are you still learning as a director? What challenges you as a director? Everything
2: oh, <laughs> Ev- everything. Everything. Study, courage, articulation, staying fresh, not letting assumptions take over yeah. what's actually happening. There's nothing that's not it's all challenging. How do you cultivate
1: joy and pleasure and delight in a rehearsal space
2: that's one of and you've heard me say this Mm -hmm. before that all great questions have exactly the same answer so ask the question again it's truly a great question i'm going to answer it
1: uh what do you do to cultivate joy and pleasure and delight in the rehearsal room and
2: the answer is exactly.
1: I've heard this. <laughs> yeah.
2: Meaning you have to walk in the room with that question. There's no, there's no recipe, but you have to ask that question.
1: You know, that gets me excited about, um, that reminds me of the Damon Kylie. Is that how you pronounce his last name? His book, how to read a play, Uh-huh. um, which I think you wrote the introduction to, um, yeah. and I think has a lot of valuable info in it. And he has, Um, I'm constantly asking both actors and directors to write out the given circumstances of of a scene, and he, of course, starts with delineating between fact and questions. And I love that, that through the whole rehearsal process, you still have questions about what the circumstances actually are and what the world of the play actually is, rather than feeling like you have to know the answer all the time. Yeah, um, sim- similarly, you've talked so much about sort of really being there and just listening for your collaborators and empowering them by paying attention to them. When is it appropriate as a director to impose, to just say, no, this is the way it has to get done?
2: You know, there's no, again, no recipe to that. You just know in the moment, yeah. it's not, this is, this is when you have to do it. You just feel it where you just say, you say, I can save a lot of time right here. You've
1: worked a lot on several iterations of the same piece right I mean you've you've I think the Bacchae the Bacchae that you've just opened at the Guthrie right is not the first Bacchae it was in LA and perhaps other locations too yeah right what determines the changes you make with each production
2: well it goes back to trying to reapproach the work with fresh ears and fresh eyes in other yeah. words um, I mean, it's true that some productions I'll think, you know, I was really unhappy with this. Let me see if we can fix it. That's one way of doing it. The other way is just to say, I'm going to come back in the room. And I usually go back without a script in front of me. I mm-hmm. just watch what's happening and try to respond to it and make changes and adjustments based on the architecture of the space, the context we're performing in, what I'm hearing. So you know, it's, it's not usually, I'm going to fix that. I mean, occasionally it is like, I got to fix this section. That's always bugged me. I'll do that. Right. But it's more, more clarification and more experimenting about what the audience's job is and what the context is in which we are performing.
1: When do you know that a a piece or an actor's performance is audience ready is it intuitive where you go yes i'm ready to stick this in front of an audience uh or is it just (laughs) first preview is tonight here we
2: go (laughs) well you know we don't usually have the luxury of deciding when it's ready we we have a deadline right 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 (laughs) Try as hard as you can to make sure that the actors aren't standing there with their pants down when the first audience comes yeah I mean, I think it's probably good because I probably would be never ready. I'd say it's never ready. Right, right, right. Uh,
1: Okay, final question. Uh, You've mentioned Ellen. Whose work, maybe other directors, um, playwrights, designers, uh, other actors, whom do you really admire? I know you've already commented on Ellen's acting, but other collaborators or people you've delighted in from afar. Can you name
2: a few? Yeah, I really love um Richard Jones's work. You know, Brit. I mean he's he's somebody spectacular. I go I go in and out with Ivo von Hova. I adore him as yeah. a person. Sometimes I really sometimes I really love what he's doing, you know. Um but then there's isolated examples like I think um Sarah Benson's production of Octoroon uh-huh. was life altering, you know, just stunning stunning you know it's 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 um it's also i think important for all of us to travel and see things you know in other in other yeah. cultures yeah i try to do that in fresh uh, but yeah no there's exciting times
1: yeah no and i love going out we'll finish up but I, I i love uh you know going out and seeing stuff that i don't even think is successful in all its different ways and uh but i still learn from it right i go oh I'm not, I'm not going to do that again. Or, you know, I saw a play recently where the acting was pretty strong and the designs were gorgeous. Uh, and some of the writing was really interesting and it just didn't thread the needle. Like the world of the play was unclear. I didn't know what belonged in the play and what didn't belong in the play. And I found that frustrating.
2: You know, stand, stand by the, the, the Taiwanese director is really phenomenal these days and worth seeking out.
1: Mm. Will you tell me his or her name again?
2: Stan Lai. Stan is the first name Lai, L-A-I, is worth looking into.
1: I'll look him up. Um, Before we finish up, let me just ask you, what's your next project? What are you working on right now?
2: I am about to start on... I just finished uh, Tristan and Isolde in Croatia. Wow. Opened it in the city of Rijeka, which is the cultural capital of Europe this year. And now I'm embarking on a new production of an older musical called uh, The Beautiful Lady, which was written by Liz Suedos and Paul Schmidt. Uh People who I adore, you know, the composer Liz Suedos, who was my age, she unfortunately died. And Paul Schmidt, who you would know from, he did all the great Chekhov translations. They made a piece called The Beautiful Lady, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, about a um, cafe in St. Petersburg, Russia, just before the revolution Where all these, it was a cafe called The Stray Dog, and all these Russian poets like Anna Akhmatova and Marina Tsvetayeva and Mayakovsky, and all these people would come and read their poetry like poetry slams. And so she's written music and it's poetry and uh, it's pretty exciting. Oh, wow. It's called The Beautiful Lady. The
1: Beautiful Lady. All right. I'll check it out. On your way out. any advice for young? We a lot of uh, young artists listen to this podcast. Any advice for young artists endeavoring to make their own work and make it in this artistic theatrical world?
2: Courage, courage. All right, and thank you so much. And nice to hear you.
0: Yeah. If you are enjoying us again, please uh, feel free to leave an iTunes writing uh, that it scales with your uh, emotional response to <laughs> our
1: to our podcast. So we wanna thank DU for helping to fund our podcast. We wanna thank Jonathan Howard, our terrific sound engineer and web designer, Jennifer Forsyth for her administrative prowess, Kami Chaikin for her energy and commitment to increasing our social media presence. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, And Nate Cushing for his awesome editing. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.